Fandom University. Every other week, we deep dive into the topics we love and obsess over. Comics, novels, movies, sci-fi, and video games receive the elevated discourse they deserve. With your overworked TAs, Sean and Sergio. Hello out there, all you space jockeys and engineers. Welcome to another beautiful, amazing, scrumptious episode of Fandom University. My name is Sergio. And mine is Sean. We're here to wrap up our alien arc. This has been a couple months in the making, just in terms of episodes, but in terms of prep, we started this, what, like back in May? Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, it's been our summer of alien. Our, yeah, you coined that phrase in our interview with Sarah Welch Larson in the last episode. And I think it's it's apt. It's our not our summer of love, but our summer of alien love. Yeah, um, it's been... I would say two thirds of the content that I've been consuming. Uh, and it would probably have been a hundred percent if it weren't for other professional, you know, obligations uh, in the meantime. So uh, we don't, we don't do anything half-ass on this show. We go full ass. We use our whole ass. Yeah. We use our entire ass Both when cheeks. it comes to fandom. All four cheeks. That's, that's the slogan for our podcast, Fandom University, using our whole ass. <laughs> We've got a lot of fun stuff planned for the show. We've got an interview with author Alex White. They are the author of great books such as Alien, The Cold Forge, and the brand new book just came out just a couple months ago, Alien Into Charybdis. We will be discussing those books with them as well as the future of the franchise because their books take place post-Alien 3. Well, Into Charybdis does. Um, Cold Forge takes place... Well, I guess you could make that argument. Yeah, because Aliens and Alien 3 take place the same year. So yeah, I would say that's fair. The Cold Forge starts off, I think, around like the first chapter is a, is roughly the same time as Aliens and Alien 3. Yeah. But I think there's a time jump. Oh, that, you're right. Yeah. The majority of the book takes place beyond what is known as like, you know, the, the, the core Alien universe. Again, assuming Alien Resurrection gets retconned out of the continuity which i I, we have made a pretty solid uh, argument that it does yeah yeah that it's definitely it hasn't been a hard retcon but it's been sort of softly ignored so we will be discussing those two books with them later on the episode we're very excited for that these books are crazy good yeah yeah um both of them you know uh John Horner Jacobs, who's an author I follow on Twitter, a uh, very good writer, was talking about reading these. And he said that those two books were his favorite entries in the franchise since the first two movies. And even if these weren't alien novels, they would just be good, really good sci-fi novels, like great character work, great ideas at play, like does new things with the material, Um absolutely brutal uh in, in it's you know violence and uh emo- both emotional and physical like alex isn't afraid to hurt the reader basically um i think with a lot of licensed fiction the characters end up feeling kind of safe even if they were just created for that particular story like they a lot of uh times licensed fiction kind of tends to play by you know the rules of the movies that came before so you can kind of check the boxes or know who's going to live and who's going to die you know sort of the final girl sort of thing in a slasher movie but in these books you just don't know like and 
so it it's like the original alien where you don't know that Sigourney, you know, walking in blind, you don't know that Sigourney Weaver is going to be the one to make it out. Like you just don't know. Um, and I will say within do Charybdis without giving anything away, like I was surprised about which characters survived and which ones didn't. Uh, and we'll probably get into that in the interview. So I guess that we might want to put up a spoiler tag, I guess, when we get into that stuff. No, for sure. Because if you are interested in the books and this might be what pushes you over the edge as terms of, you know, of picking up uh, a copy and reading it yourself, you know, you definitely don't want to get the plot spoiled for you. Yeah, the the these books, especially, they're just packed with twists and turns and surprises that I didn't see coming. And I... I don't do the, the storytelling thing for my entire living, but it's at least a lucrative side hustle and I was getting knocked on my ass. So I'm just saying, pro tip, buy these books. We cannot wait until uh, you guys get to hear that interview with Alex White. Before we get into the rest of the episode, we want to once again, and for the last time, plug our giveaway for the ARC. We will be giving away a copy of The Art of Alien Isolation, a coffee table type book, which covers all the artwork uh, the iconography, the aesthetics of the video game Alien Isolation. It's it's a work of beauty. It's it's I mean it's 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 a beautiful game to behold, and the book itself like distills all that art into a, a medium that is that makes it even more uh, easy to appreciate. Right, because it's you know uh, one of the things that made Alien so great is how detailed every shot was, and I feel like Isolation was the first thing this was before well i guess prometheus had come out but it, it was the first non ridley scott thing to really capture that level of detail um and still feel like it was in the same world as alien um and so just being able to actually stop and look at it as a fit you know on paper is a pretty extraordinary thing to behold and just reminds you also how much work goes into making these games you know that we take like 10 20 hours of our lives but like there's like an army of people you know to give you that tenant talented yeah really talented people gifted hard-working people that goes into this so not only is it a beautiful book but it's also a beautiful testament to the people who help bring us these stories and speaking of hard work and an army of people getting together an army of talented people getting together to create this you know fun work of art our second giveaway will be a copy of the alien rpg starter set from free league publishing this is everything you need to get started playing the Alien RPG. If, you've, if you're a fan of tabletop role-playing games and have th thought about getting into the Alien game, here's your chance. If you have considered, if you've never played a TTRPG and have considered getting into it and you're a fan of the Alien franchise, this is perfect for you. It comes with a 100-page rulebook. Uh, a set of dice a star map um i think you get some pre-generated character cards for the cinematic scenario and it also comes i believe with the scenario chariot of the gods um with so you've already got a pre-made cinematic scenario to play like you could although there is a campaign version of the game this game also has a cinematic mode that's meant to imitate the films and the structure of those so you don't know who's going to live who's going to die and they're meant to be played in like two to four hours so you can basically just pick this up and play and if you're a tabletop role-playing game neophyte you have no idea what the terms campaign or cinematic mode mean stay tuned because we'll be discussing the game with Stuart Watkinson he is the co-host of the D&D &D Lorecast 
He runs Committee Quest, which is a playcast. He basically knows the in and outs of TTRPGs. He's a close friend of the show, and he's played the Alien RPG. He's a huge fan of the franchise. We'll be talking with him in just a few minutes about it. But before we get into that, once again, enter the giveaway. Super easy. Three simple steps. Step one, get on Twitter and follow at FandomUPodcast. That's our Twitter account. Step two, send out a tweet with the hashtag FandomUPodcast. Again, it, it can just be a completely blank tweet and just it just has a hashtag. Or it can just have the hashtag and say, like, give me free stuff. Or it can say, it can have the hashtag and say, as soon as this giveaway is over, we're going to unfollow you. <laughs> We'd rather it not be that third one. But we will honor the terms of the agreement. This is, we're making it super easy to win stuff. So step one, follow us on Twitter at Phantom U Podcast. Step two, use the hashtag, hashtag Phantom U Podcast. Step three, cross your fingers, hope for, hope for luck. Cross your fingers, cross your toes. If you got lightsabers, cross those. Do a little stunt work with your buddies. Put it on TikTok, possibly get some work. Like that one guy with the, um, he, became, he was like Spider-Man, right? What? Oh, I didn't know that. But yeah, you, you could be the that? next Spider-Man. You could be, I mean, Tom Holland is is only getting older. Right. He can't play Peter Parker forever. Right. Well, and the older he gets, the better chance our older listeners have of getting in on that franchise. Exactly. Like someone goes to Kevin Feige, says, I've got a pitch, old Spider-Man. And then boom, the casting call goes out. It could be you. Yeah. Spider, the spider Knight returns. And it's all because of this show, Fandom University, right. and our giveaways, our amazing giveaways. So unlock the key to your future by following us and tweeting out hashtag Fandom University and anything else you like. No. Fandom You Podcast. Fandom You Podcast. God damn it. I will just cut that. <laughs> you still have a few days to enter. We will be drawing winners for both of those giveaways on July 31st. And with our next arc, we'll have an entirely new giveaway. So you, if, you, if you don't win this time, you definitely have a chance to win again. So let's go ahead and just jump into our interview with Alex White. Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. They are the writer of the Salvagers trilogy from Orbit Books, as well as a Star Trek novel, Deep Space Nine Revenant. But for the purposes of this interview, we are going to talk with them about their couple of alien books, The Cold Forge and Into Charybdis. Say hello, Alex White. Hello. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this and uh, for, for being flexible since we've had some uh, technical issues today. <laughs> yeah. um, it was very kind of you. Um, so I thought, I thought we'd talk a little bit about, um, to start with, your, your sort of, um, not bio, but your history as a writer. Like I, I saw on your Wikipedia page that uh, you actually worked on a podcast for five years. Is that where you kind of started with writing or did you start with novels? Oh, and no. No, definitely not. I always wanted to be a writer. Um, you know, back in high school, I started writing, trying to write movies. Clerks had come out and like every edgy high school kid, I wanted to write a movie myself. That, that doesn't sound familiar at all. Not to us. <laughs> yeah, every, every, right. I had a I had a tech support period where like you, you could have like a free study hall if you supported the teacher's uh, IT needs. Mm hmm. And so I would sit at the computer in the tech support period and and type out movie scripts, uh, you know, that, that I was actually intending to film. I got like one of my uh, friends to uh, give me three grand to film it even. Wow. <laughs> that guy 
that guy was beyond rich so uh, you know he didn't care <laughs> but like to me that was a lot of money and i think to most people that's a lot of money so i was really lucky but uh yeah unfortunately he died a couple of years ago but oh. i know i would have loved him to see where i got yeah i'm sure he would have been really uh happy with that well and you know what that tells you is that seriously investing in kids actually helps a lot oh that's i, I absolutely agree is i guess it was like to um there's a story in Trevor Noah's memoir where he's talking about he had a well-to-do friend and he had a CD burner when CD burners had you know kind of a novelty. And so he would use these to burn mix CDs and he ended up like DJing and selling these mix CDs. And then the friend just like, hey, do you just want it? You, I can give it to you. And, and Trevor Noah was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. And he says like, you know, everyone knows the old adage, you know, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. But the guy needs a fishing pole to begin with, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, and it, and it is so true. Like, um, you know, I, I have had a lot of, uh, a lot of help getting where I am. And I think every writer is a sort of a product of their, you know, their influences in their school, you know, good and bad. Right. So like <laughs> you can have a lot of help getting to where you are, you know, like personal tragedy and right. suffering yep. for sure. Yeah. That'll get you there too. Uh, yeah. Though it doesn't help the with the current writing, you know. I don't. I don't really buy into the artist pain. Kind of. I think you can be happy and hopefully well adjusted and still write somebody good. I, I don't know. I'm not either of those things. No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> <laughs> or so I assume. But no, I, I completely agree with you that 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 sort of um, trope it's a dangerous is dangerous myth. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. I don't want people to like go want pain. Right. Don't worry. You'll get older. It'll happen to you. Yeah, like it's gonna happen naturally. Like life has just has a funny way of letting that happen. To right. You. One of these days, it's gonna straight up murder you. So, uh... I was gonna so say. Start... Ta- I was gonna say talking about straight up murder. I let's, can we just dive into the Cold Forge? Your oh, fir- okay. Your first sure. alien book. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to do so. What do you want to know? So I I was kind of interested about the the genesis of the project. So how did you get involved? I mean, you were working on, I guess, Big Ship at the Edge of the Universe came out the same year as Cold Forge. So like, yeah, so that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I was like working on this passion project, Big Ship, uh, because I mean, like every project is a passion project when you are uh, starting out, don't have a contract at all. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, but anyway, I sold my debut around the same time, or my agent sold my debut around the same time, uh, which is a book called Every Mountain Made Low, which is a gay autistic Southern Gothic dystopian thriller for those of you into that extremely popular genre. <laughs> well known. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that old and, thing, yeah. Yeah, and we were like, we were really, I, I was like, I need another gig at the same time. You know, like, I know that we, I know that this book is going to come out in 18 months, but I don't want to wait 18 months. We got to, we got to find another job. And my agent's like, okay, well, I can get you a meeting with this editor at Dragon Con. And I was like, great. Awesome. That's what I want. You know, and it was to get the meeting with the editor was a little bit more complicated. The, the publicist from the current book actually left and went to Titan. And she was such a huge fan of the book and the new publicist, I don't think he was as enthusiastic about it, you know, and who can blame him? Uh, (laughs) Anyway, I love the book. I think everybody should read it. I recognize that it's not like hotcakes over here. (laughs) It's for very specific people. And if you don't like it, that's okay. It probably wasn't written for you. 
Yeah, my uh, my favorite professor in my MFA program always said, "Don't write your books for people who won't like them." You know, so like right, right, right. Like I don't need to convince you to read that book. That one's that one's a really. Uh, I think the reviews are really great because they're all like one in five stars. You know, either you like know some autistic person and you're like, oh, yeah, I see this, you know, and I understand. And like, that's what it's like. Or, or you'll say, I see this in myself. Right. Like, that's that's how I got there. Uh, you know, but a lot of people, you know, who are uh, maybe neurotypical uh, are, are like, what, what is this? You know, and that's OK, too. I wrote some other books you might like. <laughs> well, yeah, I think there's something to be said, though, about reading something that's completely out of your wheelhouse just so you can gain a different perspective yeah and i hope that that's how people will take it you know hopefully they'll say oh right i, I sort of understand a little bit now uh, these things are important i can empathize i can right. you know i can i can see that there's you know i can see beyond my own nose hopefully that's, that's always a hope that's why i like to write you know <laughs> Stories are empathy machines, or at least a lot of them yeah. are. Um, they can be. They're not all of them are, I guess. But um, well, that's why I think it's such a privilege to be writing right now. You know, because we really need empathy pretty dang badly. Yes. Yes. Say that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I really want to engender in people like you. You think that your neighbor's the bad guy, and you're wrong. Uh, you, you know, anybody lateral to you is probably not the bad guy. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, and that's something in. Oh, I'm sorry. Of, uh, Unless your neighbor is a white supremacist, then your neighbor is the bad guy. Right, right, right. <laughs> then he absolutely is a bad guy. But for the most part, I mean, you know, for the most part, you know, people want to uh, take care of themselves, take care of their family. Right. You know, live, they have strong motivations be happy. that are usually around good things. Yeah. You know, see their, their, their kids or uh, whoever they right. care for to to grow up and, and, you know, be better off yeah. than them. Well, and oftentimes you find them sort of haywired to find their basic need challenged in their mind. They'll be like, well, this person, this other type of person is stopping me from caring for my family. It's like, how, what are you talking about? And then, you know, they'll tell you some, whatever harebrained excuse they came up with, but you know, it never, it doesn't change the fact that they, they wire that to a basic need in their minds so they can justify just about anything. Absolutely. So, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. We should talk about the books. Well, that, like yeah. The so, basic <laughs> nature of humanity. <laughs> so we were talking about how you had to switch publicists uh, partway through. Oh, right. How it came about. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was at UX Week out in San Francisco when I got the call. Uh, that like, oh, uh, I've set you up a play date with this editor at Dragon Con, right? And I was like, okay, let's uh, let's let's come up with some ideas because I actually didn't think this would work, you know. <laughs> and and so I came up with like three ideas, and one was kind of like a Lord of the Flies kind of thing. The other was this Cold Forge pitch, and then there was a third thing, and I can never remember what the third thing was. And sometimes I'll remember it, but you know. It doesn't matter. It wasn't that great. It didn't get picked. So I, I came into the pitch meeting, though, ready to do things in real estate order, which is uh, second best, worst, best. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. And so the journey that you try to create here is you go, all right, this is my, this is an idea that I think is very good, that I think is going to get your attention. And then they hopefully... Uh, like your idea enough to say, okay, I'm on board. And then you pitch them your next idea and they, it hopefully creates a moment of anxiety. You know, somebody to go, well, <laughs> I don't know if I meant to listen to you after all. 
Right. And then and then you come out with your best. And 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 the delta between the two moments is this huge moment of renewal of faith. Oh, you're not as <laughs> foolish as you sounded a moment ago. <laughs> so um now I don't know if this works. It that that seemed to work for me. I you know, I haven't been in that uh particular situation. It sounds like a good idea to me. So <laughs> if I Oh, speaking of podcasts, actually. I also worked on a podcast called Disaster Peace Theater with my friend Steven a long time ago. And it's, you know, it was where we played these like bad Hollywood producers who were trying to make like the worst likeliest <laughs> movie based on a theme every week. So like we want, you know, how movies like Battleship exist. Well, and, and so we were like trying to do all these jokes about how you know capitalistic and problematic hollywood was and all this other stuff and all we really ended up doing was just bringing things up for people who probably didn't want to talk about them anyway so we canceled the show but for a couple of years we were pitching each other every single week uh we got a lot of practice in. and when it comes to like going to pitch meetings i mean it's it's second nature now uh i love doing pitches i'm a i'm a pitch meeting person uh yeah, I don't know. I love pitching. I'll always do anything I can to get to a pitch. I, I mean, I think that that probably sets you apart from a lot of novelists, uh, probably. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that, that's what I would think is like most most novelists write because they don't like to talk. Well, and it is a bit like, I mean, going in there and like pitching and then selling a pitch to an editor if you deliver on time it's like you walked out onto the plate and you pointed at the stands and you're like you want it you want that home run right there okay you know and when you do it it is a real <laughs> magic trick <laughs> it went from zero to finished in one you know in six months here you go so that that i guess that, that that's interesting so with the the cold forge it sounds like you were sort of allowed to kind of you weren't beholden to any particular era in the franchise or oh they 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 told me you know work with what you want and i was like okay i want to work with <laughs> nothing that anybody else is touching I'm just gonna just gonna fork off a little branch of the alien universe here and just make it mine that that also answers one of my questions is whether or not you would had this story sort of kicking around and maybe had like the the bones of it and then got the gig and sort of like molded it because um Nope. <laughs> the story is is very much an alien story and yet not you could take the the xenomorph or snatchers as as you call them in the book out of the right. story entirely and replace them with an unknown dangerous alien right. species and it and it could be the same story and that's what's that was what's so fascinating to me like in it is and it isn't all the same time. What's great about it is you're you're I feel like I almost agree with you, except that it's tied into the central conceits of Prometheus and Covenant uh, really, really strongly. So the the black goo being sort of the mm -hmm. legendary miracle cure that the character's working working towards. I, I guess you could say, like, oh well, that's a different black goo. Like we could start like you know, we could we could file off the serial numbers on any for sure. <laughs> like, like I could take Empire Strikes Back, file off the serial numbers, and rewrite it. I bet I'd get up on that list. I could probably sell that book. <laughs> you know, it's not a bad idea. Uh, you know, you know. Hey, listen, anybody who's like, you know, oh my gosh, what did they make Star Wars off of? Well, that was the Hidden Fortress with the serial numbers filed off. Like, just keep going. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. 
I, and I think that's great. I think that's, uh, that should be freeing. You should feel free to look at any of your favorite creators and say like, oh, that part was cool. I'm going to use yeah. that. And just that part, you know, or if you, if you like something that's like, you know, that turns out to not age very well, for example, <laughs> you know, maybe you can go, hey, that part that really meant a lot to me that stuck in my memory for all those years, let's make that into a series. And that works just fine. It's great. Even people will be like, oh, it's an homage, but it's not, you know, that serious. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Right. Which can be immensely freeing. Sort of like, I mean, you talk about Hidden Fortress. Also, I think Lucas tried to get the rights mm. to um, Flash Gordon at one point and, and yeah, he couldn't. Right. So he did Star yeah. Wars and thank God it was Star Wars, and not Flash Gordon. <laughs> right. What a great, what a great yeah. problem. <laughs> I'm so glad that happened to you, George. I mean, I'm sorry. I know it was frustrating at the time. But uh, he he did okay with it. Yeah, he he eliminated. Yeah. Oh, man. I bet he thinks back and he's like, man, Flash Gordon movie that could have been. <laughs> a man can dream. Uh, oh, if only. <laughs> well, we ended up getting that movie in the 80s and it was not very good. Yeah, there you go. Question answered. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so first of all, we deal with a lot of chronic illnesses around me and mine and lots of friends with them too. Uh, and, and so one of the things that I was dealing with personally was insurance fuckery. Can I say fuckery? Yes. Absolutely. Great. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. Insurance fuckery, which, you know, at least they didn't just let me die, but uh, it wasn't great and it never has been. And there was this writer, J.C. Hutchins, who had said something massively influential to me early on about horror. He's a friend of mine. He went to Balticon. He has a couple of books, um, including one that's like an augmented reality game slash book. And it's wow. like, that's fun. You know, <laughs> anyway, uh, he said when he was doing interviews for that book, he was like, you should do... Uh, the, the main character of a horror should be the person least equipped to deal with the situation. And I was like, wow, that is pretty freaking profound. And so I started thinking about the situation of Alien and, and what, it, what it was really like. You know, it's, a, it's the kind of place where you go on a multi-year mission when you have a, a toddler daughter, right? Like, yeah. And, and for apparently not that good a pay, it doesn't look fun. It doesn't, you know, I didn't get the impression that Ripley ended up like rich, you know, yeah. I know some, I know some intermodal first officers and I mean, they they do okay, but like not leave your family for years. Okay. Doesn't justify that. Yeah. No. And does anything. I mean, if there's a, if we live in a world where people feel like they have to miss multiple years of their kids' lives for money, as opposed to just being like, dude, you were never there. What happened? That's kind of disturbing. Right. That's, um, yeah, sort of a capitalist slavery or serfdom, essentially, which Alien is very much about. Yeah. And I'm always really careful about using the word slavery because there really is only one thing that's slavery. Fair. Um, but, you know, it is bad. It is extremely fucking bad. And whenever somebody's like, wow, how do you learn to write an alien? I'm like, what are you talking about? You live here. <laughs> You've been you've been living that sort of existence, maybe not extrapolated to its, right. to its like highest, but and in, in, in a certain sense, you're already living it. Right. right. It just if, didn't have the trappings. Right. Let me tell you, if you thought that if if these billionaires thought that they could make an extra one percent next year if you were dead, there'd be a safe falling on you. 
the next time you've stepped out of your door, <laughs> Looney Tunes style. That was that char- the character of Dorian was really intriguing to me because he starts off as sort of that very cutthroat, like has that very cutthroat corporate mentality. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, his first scene is he's essentially like going through books and figuring out how he could uh, essentially screw people over right. to, to save the company. Right. He's all mad because he doesn't get credit for the insurance uh, savings on the suicide. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which is just like the meanest. I was like, what's the meanest thing you could be <laughs> mad about? <laughs> but he even concedes that it's it's just going all it is going to enhance, you know, Whaling Utani's portfolio a fraction of a of a half of a percentage. But to him it's worth it. Right. Oh, right. No, absolutely. And he right, because he just wants to he wants to hit his performance metrics. He wants to make a game out of it that he can win. And like it's not enough to win. Somebody else needs to lose. Yeah. Yeah. He's and there are a lot of people that are like that. You know, and, and you see them in your workplace all the time. It's the people who like to do everything through confrontation. They oftentimes mask themselves as the Steve Jobs in the room. But really, when you're like, I have strong opinions weekly hell, it's like, I don't know, are you strong yourself? Because then you can't weekly hold anything. So yeah, Dorian's abound in the in the world around us, and I always like to say like, what's what's worst case scenario is that guy just gets turned loose, and which he does in the in the book, <laughs> right? And just sort of like that in prose, he the character himself re- refers to it as an awakening, like he's finally like almost like he's evolving, you know, as oh, like yes. as as a snatcher evolves from Ovamorph to Face Hugger to Chestburster to Final right. Product. He's finally achieving his final form. Right, he's coming out of his skin, so to speak. Yeah, and it's it's terrifying. It's what what I would ex- have expected the I guess like the final third of the book to be actually starts off halfway through, mm. and I'm thinking like there's no way that they are go- <laughs> that there's I was thinking there's no way they are going to be able to maintain the tension and the momentum throughout half the book, and fuck all you did you absolutely <laughs> did and and what's crazy is like the snatchers and, and the, before uh we want to also ask like the 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 inspiration for that name but you know mm. snatchers show up very sporadically like the main tension the main protagonist is the dorian character and and what he's doing yeah well i mean you know okay first of all you can't have an alien on screen with a person without it trying to kill them a hundred percent of the time yeah and so like it's you know either either move the camera out or you you know go ahead and kill the person (laughs) yeah and and certainly um you know alien is is like that for me i mean where i you know i can't i can't just sit here deploying aliens all the time because for for me it's like if it touches you you're dead you know, I don't want right. it to, I don't want there to be any ifs, ands, or buts. I don't want it to be fun. I don't want it to be like, oh, that one, I I, I actually got to pet it. We're friends now. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, I don't know if you uh, read any of the Dark Horse stuff in the 90s. Uh, oh, yes. I, I felt <laughs> Most like they, of it. Yeah, okay, okay. So <laughs> I, I remember getting that feeling at a certain point that like, it was because it's hard to keep it scary if it's constantly around and you have to produce right. it. The more you explain it, the less scary it becomes. Right. I think that's something that uh, your novels do very well uh, with, with uh, 
preserving that that mystery, making it not commonplace. You know, uh, one of the things that I didn't like about Alien Resurrection, for example, is that the xenomorphs aren't really they're they're kind of pets at the beginning, and yeah, they end up yeah. being dangerous, but they feel more commonplace there. They just feel like they're there. Right, and, right. Yeah, I I also you know like if you're like the Colonial Marines, and we can talk about integral just in a bit. You know, like even if you're fighting like hundreds of these things, um, I wanted to feel like at that point, like you're longboarding and at any moment you could start speed wobbling. One thing goes wrong, you're dead. You know, like that's what I want my alien fights to be like. If, you know, if you have the means to stop it, you either outright win or you outright lose. <laughs> That's that's but that's I, that's how I like to that's how I like to keep it tense uh, with those guys, you know, and so obviously you can't keep doing that all the time. Right. And so the interpersonal conflict, that's where really the story has to come from, because uh, Ripley's right. You know, I don't know who the real monsters are. <laughs> I, yeah. that, that was and this felt like the the closest thing i actually referred to it as a movie a couple of times oh thank you because it, like, the book and like that's you know that's how that's how much i really enjoyed oh. it is that is that i could actually visualize what was you know what i was either reading or listening to i, I swapped between uh my card copy and an audible copy that's awesome uh, oh yeah the reading on that one was really good too that's fantastic yeah it's really good but yeah what's the what was the inspiration behind the snatcher moniker Oh, well, I just didn't like the, like, the xenomorph. You know, to me, like, xenomorph is, like, foreign object. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. oh, cool. That could be something that got stuck up somebody's butt. That's a foreign <laughs> object, right? Like, <laughs> uh, that could be a truck. It could be a knife. You know, like, I, I just haven't seen it before. That's the only distinguishing characteristic, which, you know, it's a cool-looking word. And yeah. I'm really glad that we got it. And I feel like uh, we, as a as a society, like I, Alex White, will always call it the Xenomorph because that's the brand name, right? You know, like it's it's Xeno, it's a Xenomorph brand Xenomorph. Like we know that, you know. Whereas like a person in that world, I feel like would hear the term Xenomorph and be like, "What the fuck? Are you yeah. for real? You can't describe it. It's got a penis for a head." <laughs> 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 okay well i'll start four bagpipes weird spine tail what do you want to name it after <laughs> that's that way i guess that's perfectly good rationale like i can't yeah. argue with that and so i was like they snatch people <laughs> snatching people all the time that's the scariest thing about it you don't want to get killed you want to get killed by it getting right. snatched by it's like way worse agreed so. Yeah, I wanted something that would conjure the mostly comes out at night. You know, I wanted something that was a little childish. I think you nailed it. Um, as far as like the the technicalities of writing the book, you mentioned about six months from soup to nuts, right? So, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Did you have to submit an outline that had to be approved by Titan before you actually started writing? Do you usually? Oh, uh... have <laughs> oh that part's a little messier. Um... Oh. Yeah, so you submit your outline and they're like, yeah, we think you're a good idea. And then they, you know, they talk to the approver and the approver's like, yeah, we think that's probably a good idea. And then they give you maybe like an offer letter and then they talk and then you talk and then there's, you know, that timer can start ticking around the time you get that first signed anything. 
everybody starts to have expectations people who are like oh my gosh what if they screw you or something like that it's like if they went around doing that word would get around quick no yeah absolutely i mean that's uh one's reputation uh is still has some value even in today's day and age and for their part titan is really awesome they treat me really nicely their publicists are amazing i love lydia gittens and all of them they're fantastic to work oh with. yeah uh titan published my book in the uk cosmology and i got to work with lydia a little bit she's wonderful yeah you brought earlier you brought up uh chronic illness the main character in the cold forge blue suffers from a degenerative disease yes that leaves her relatively bedridden yes and so and she takes over a synthetic named marcus and that's sort of her proxy that's how she's able to you know, quote unquote, move around. Right. Uh, can you discuss the strategy and inspiration in writing a character that a character with disability without falling into the whole, you know, person with a disability in distress cliche? Sure. But also, you know, you also gave her quite a bit of agency at the same time. Sure. Well, one thing that I like to remind people about is that we as a society create disabilities. You know, when we don't provide accessible options, we're, we're actually deciding to make people more disabled. You know, there's, there's only so far that we're capable of going, but of course we don't ever go that far. And so given the number of businesses that, you know, break the ADA and then the onus is on the customer to come sue them, for example, uh, that's not gonna happen in a lot of cases. So a lot of places rely on getting away with it. Wayland Utani feels like one <laughs> such place. I'm just gonna throw that out there. I, I think they would be real shitty at accessibility. Yeah, I don't think anyone who is a fan of the Alien franchise would argue <laughs> that point. One thing I really admired about Blue and her relationships with um, with Marcus and oh, her her lover. Oh, Anne. And yeah, who's who ends up hooking up with Dorian? Um, yeah. Is oh, how, poor Anne. I know, I know, I I. <laughs> That's, that's uh, the problem with being a synthetic fetishist. You should just stick with the synthetics because the, the real men ain't that great. Yeah. Yeah. They'll, the real men who act like over. synthetics are uh, sociopaths. <laughs> there was a there was a while where I like I had an internal debate as to whether or not Dorian would end up being a synthetic. And oh. Then, yeah. And I'm glad that he I'm glad that he wasn't because that's the the cruelest, yeah, I guess the fate of all would be like, yeah, he's no, he's just like me. Yeah, like he's not a robot. Like the reason he's doing that is because he is a right. human being and he is just yeah, like Yeah, he me. really actually exists. That guy is barely modified from the real world. <laughs> I I yeah. you know, I actually really um when I was writing him, I wanted to be really careful about sort of the 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 label of psychopath and sociopath because truth be told people who have those labels are more likely to be the victims of violent crimes than the perpetrators you know everyone mm -hmm. with mental illness is more likely to be the victim of a violent crime than a perpetrator so movies like psycho for example promote ableist mythologies dorian is a very smart person and he may be neurodivergent in some way, but what makes him unique is his willingness to sort of get whatever he needs. And mm -hmm. once you can link something to just outright survival, you know, and say like, well, I had to survive, 
people can do a lot a whole lot your best friends will walk away from you if it means that they get to walk you know they get to live and you don't you know maybe i would like to think that i would dive in and try to save my friends or whatever and find a way that we could both live but if there's no way that you can both live that's an interesting problem and one that uh that a synthetic wouldn't have because and that's That was the most haunting part of the Cold Forge for me was Marcus's realization that Blue used him to break one of his prime directives, essentially to to not harm a human being and sort of the emotional toll it takes on him. I have this little pet theory that I've, you know, that I've worked into all of my books that androids are actually basically pretty normal until you ask them to harm a human. And once, and and they can, and they will, but once they do, they're pretty much gone. Like emotionally, they've become a problem, you know, and, and, but in different ways, you know, like Marcus, Marcus became too depressed to continue existing. I I did want to mention that. Yeah, that was something um, that physically hurt to uh, read was that relationship sort of falling apart. Oh, yeah there's a real warmth to it earlier in the book and um just his absolute rejection of her as a someone he has a bond to that is beyond functionality uh was pretty heartbreaking right um yeah he goes to just like straight caretaker yeah and then of course she has that dream where he uh towards the end of the book for where you get that last jump scare in uh yeah. <laughs> which was pretty great but um i i, I did want to just you know uh, not so much a question but just more of a compliment the allowing the characters to be complex allowing blue to be kind of an asshole a lot <laughs> yeah. of the time um i thought uh, another one of my favorite teachers was like characters don't need to be likable they just need to be interesting and i felt right. like i feel like both of your alien books are just chock full of some of the characters are likable but all of them are interesting um so i i, I wanted to make sure i got at least that compliment oh, i appreciate that interrogation yeah especially with blue and dorian so there's a lot of references to sort of the color of their blood and the book because dorian you know, he always wishes the color of his blood was yellowish green. <laughs> you know, he's <laughs> he very, he's really into the alien. He wishes he was an alien. He'd probably fuck an alien if given the chance. I don't know. He's he's <laughs> he's into it. He likes the alien a lot. Um, which we all like the alien about as much as Dorian. That's why we write books about it and stuff like how messed up are we? <laughs> <laughs> um, but blue, on the other hand, is you know, am I a human or am I a machine? You know, and when humans are constantly pushing them away, they really land quite far from their own humanity while still trying as hard as they can to hang on to it, which is where Intercaribdis sort of comes in. So transitioning, when I finished Cold Forge, I was sort of expecting more of a direct sequel Mm. um, picking up Intercaribdis. I hadn't like read the the flap copy or anything. I just was like, grabbed it off the shelf bought it and started reading and uh what you do instead is you actually go with a a much wider angle lens and we get a much bigger look at the world um yeah was that always the intention with the book to sort of kind of almost a stealth sequel to cold forge oh yeah yeah absolutely um i was really into trying to in fact with the publisher i was i was like we i don't want to tell anybody it's a sequel 
Like, and so ahead of time, we kept it totally secret. And then I was calling my author friends and I was like, I convinced them to do a secret sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Um, You know, and, and because there was a whole lot of like, oh, I really want another blue book. And for me, it was like, well, if blue has another harrowing, lengthy experience, what at what point am I just like dragging out disability? Like, oh man, isn't it tough? Uh, uh, you know, it, that that starts to turn into um, it's just torture porn at that point, right? And then and then if it if, if you do that to a certain point, are you, are you are you being ableist, right? Are you starting to dehumanize people with disabilities? And so I was like, no, blue's blue's been through almost enough. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it kind of reminds me, you know, um, I think we're about the same age. I was in junior high and high school when the Scream movies were coming out. And I remember by the time we got to the third one, I did not feel like the three main characters were in danger at all. Once. Right. Um, right. So like there, whereas in the second, even in the second one, because they killed off a major character, like at the midpoint, it was like, okay, we're, you know. Right. You got uh, yeah, to prove you got, you're doing business now. Right. And so, you know, um, which is also kind of what uh, makes Alien 3 kind of great is that they just go ahead and kill Ripley. You know, right. but, um, I, you know, I think it's so funny that that's controversial. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She had three encounters with this thing. How long did you think it was going to take them to get her? Right. And, and she isn't trained to. She's a flight officer. <laughs> so like maybe like she gets lucky twice. But, you know, exactly. How long do you expect her luck yeah, to run I, out? I, I want them to leave those poor Ripley's alone. Like Amanda Ripley too. Like I don't want it to be like the story of how Amanda Ripley went off into the stars and like died because her mom died out there too. And neither one of them contained it at the end. Like, <laughs> wow, yeah. that's really shitty. I kind of liked it where Amanda died of cancer, probably peacefully. Yeah. Right. Like surrounded by loved ones and stuff. Like everybody's like, what if that was a corporate lie? And it's like, why, what if everything in science fiction wasn't dynasties? <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say that was, that was one thing I really enjoyed about the books is that there, there are definite ties, like you said, like the black goo to the franchise and obviously the, mm, yeah. the xenomorph creature itself. And there are also like illusions, like blue taking over the, um, the, the loader, obviously that being an illusion to aliens. Right. And I, when that happened, I thought like, that's fucking cool. That's rich. <laughs> One of the reviewers like dinged me for that. They're like another fucking power loader. <laughs> I was like, well, you guys like what are power loaders not cool? Do you not like aliens? <laughs> that didn't seem like fan service to me. I thought that was as organic as possible. I you know, I wanted a robot uh that had a large lifting capacity that could take things over. And I was like, there's an in-universe solution for this. I don't need to uh make something new up. Yeah, it's it's always it's always interesting to see how much new stuff they'll let you do too, because you know you obviously can't go in there and make all new stuff. That won't right, work. It, that is something I I wanted to ask you about. So into Charybdis, and again, like I'm talking about this sort of generally more than getting into the specifics of what it reveals, actually starts mm-hmm. to also give us a little bit more of the Prometheus end of the world. Um, in terms of, you know, the engineers and where they built structures and things like that. And um, was that something you had to fight for? Was that something you were told specifically you could do? Or did you just do it and wait to see if you got in trouble? I I, I was like, 
All right, let's let's see if they go for it. <laughs> Take the shot, see if it goes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they went for it. And, and um, they they have gone with a lot of things that I asked for after reading my manuscripts. Disney treats me really well in terms of my opinion. Um, and and my editor Steve has been amazing about going and fighting for things if i'm like no that's important to me he'll go ask he'll you know there was one there's one um sort of time when they they were like we're not sure if we want you to show violence against children and i was like yeah i know except for the fact that there are children civilians in a war zone and i don't like the fact that we're always ignoring a lot of this stuff i want to kind of rub your nose in it a little bit and you guys cracked open a 12 year old's chest bare naked on alien three. So <laughs> yeah, you kill the kid in the opening credits and then yeah, dissector. But they were great. They were great. They were totally like, no, we see, I was like, listen, this is way less powerful. If you like make me change this to like an adult child or something like this, this is not the same scene. It's not the same book. You're not saying the same thing. What I, you know, I want it to be clear. There are civilians on the side of, on on every side of a conflict and conflict is always bad for them right and i i thought that was one nice thing about uh indo charybdis versus the cold forge is the cold forge i think you know it in a lot of ways is a pardon the expression colder book than uh indo charybdis mm, yeah. because um you know what? What's interesting? You know, it's so the the basic setup of Indo Charybdis, I guess, for the listeners, uh, you know, is you've got an American crew coming into an Iranian um, station to install an OS, and of course there are political tensions based on what you know what's going on back on Earth, and um, you know mistrust and all of that. Um, but also within each faction, there's mistrust and conflict. Um, the the man who runs the um, the colony. Oh, Haroon? Haroon, yeah. So like the first time you see him, he's an absolute tool. And then you see his home life, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. And then he goes home and he's like really nice and has like a really sweet wife. And he lives with his mom who he worships, you know? Right. And has dreams he's about playing like... cricket like he did when he was a kid. Um, <laughs> right. And I, I thought that that was really a great way of kind of just further humanizing and complicating the narrative is like letting both things be true. Because I think, you know, a lot of times, especially in genre fiction, you know, uh, there is sort of that instinct of like, well, the asshole boss is just an asshole straight across, you know, and he goes home and kicks his dog. Right. And... Yeah. Well, one of the things that can be really hard is you know, what do you do? What do you do if you find out that somebody's a monster, for example, but like maybe they're responsible for where you are today? And it's like, what? <laughs> the stories didn't prepare me for this. So I'm going to just pretend like one of those isn't true. When like when maybe restorative justice or something might have been called for instead. And, and so I, I want a book that's like, no, it, it's hard to feel a certain way about people. Absolutely. And I, I, I feel like I don't know if it's an American trait or just a, a, a people trait that need to sort of have that dichotomy between this person is good, this person is bad, you know, the, the morality play of the superhero and supervillain, you know. It makes uh, it easy. You don't have to think very hard. Right, right. And um, instead, like you have this very complex web of characters who, um, I mean, some of them are, are, are more awful than others, for sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, Definitely. <laughs> 
yeah, so Duncan, for example, isn't a particularly sympathetic character to me, but no, um, she is not. Um, <laughs> but but she got there for a reason. She's not just like she's not just awful. I you know yeah, yeah. Uh, she's also a badass. True, but I mean you know she has a traumatic experience that helped to create her. That's true, and and I I really did appreciate that. Um, again, I'm I'm sort of stepping around some spoilers, but sure. Uh, getting more into specifics you end up killing essentially two of the characters that you would expect to survive uh or that i expected to survive. <laughs> i think one is a third of the way through and the other is halfway through so first you kill shy uh, and then yeah. you kill becker um right. who are like two of our our two main point of view characters i think up until that point in the book uh okay so the first the, it's, it's a four-part book the first book is uh shine cameron the second is shine becker the third is becker and cameron and the last is cameron and duncan so cameron's in all all four parts basically but just barely <laughs> in like um and, and so he he gets whisked away at the end of the first part you know supposedly dead and at that point i want people to think i mean business and then he comes back and that's the, he comes back just in time for you to be like, oh, I guess Alex is a wimp. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I brought him back because I couldn't bear to kill a main character. That's right. Yeah, just wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, like, everything about Shy is designed to attack people who are, you know, sort of sensitive to the the, the media's kind of white default, right? She's she's a white savior. Yep. She's got chemistry with her crew members. She's attractive. Like she's used as the hostage because she's camera ready. Right. right. Like all these things where it's like, I'm even like kind of making fun of that a little bit in that paragraph where I'm like, oh, we want her because she's the one everybody's going to feel bad for. I'm like, it's okay. She's not going to make it. <laughs> you know, like, oh, and, and so like everything like this, this novel was really precisely planned ahead of time. It was my most planned book ahead of time that I've ever done. And then we we get to Blue and uh, it is not, well, it's sort of a logical extension of where she's headed at the end of the first book, but it's so much sadder and so much more brutal than um, oh, yeah. what I had uh, hoped for for her because, you know, it's like she was, you know, I was riding around in her consciousness in the previous book. So, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, and you don't get much time in her head in this one for good reason. You know, I don't want it to, I, I never, never want you to feel familiar with the xenomorph. That is bad. If you're like, oh, I understand what it's going to do, and I understand how it can go wrong, and all this other stuff. No, I want you to always be like, that is a very foreign object. Yeah. And it's extremely dangerous. And so I couldn't just have you be inside of her mind. <laughs> but one of the things that happens a lot, and you see this, um, I was really influenced when I wrote The Cold Forge by uh, an article by Roger Ebert about his Neil Paras regimen, how he lost his lower jaw. This is before he passed a couple of years ago, you know. And his ritual of eating was gone he, he got everything through a g-tube and the alienation that sort of hit him as his friends who are all fine dining foodies from chicago you know they're all that's how they enjoy life um i actually you know i, I was i was sort of a road warrior executive type myself for a while 
And uh, over that period of time, my chronic illness got worse and worse and worse to the point that I can't, I don't even eat in a restaurant. Like I eat nothing that I didn't like cook. Um, and that excludes you from stuff. And, and you know, it's like the other day at work, they're having a pizza party. And it's just like, I have to leave. I can't eat that. I know exactly what that tastes like. People keep coming by and offering it to you. They want to be helpful, right? Yeah. But the face you make when they get there with a plate of delicious garlicky, buttery pizza, uh, that I can't have that, none of that stuff. You know, like, <laughs> that's not fun. And and so it pushes you away. And it's so sad that, that it happened after I wrote Cold Forge because I'm like, I already thought about this. <laughs> I shouldn't get to work through it again. <laughs> like I already did this. Right. Well, ah. You mentioned, you mentioned that into Charybdis was your most planned uh, work mm. so far. And it seems to be setting up a bigger storyline that. Oh yeah. Well, first of all, if I had another contract, I wouldn't be able to say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> second of all, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I left a universe that was open to a diverse array of stories on any angle that a writer wanted to tie in. And, and so it was actually less about saying like, I want to control the outcome. It's more about saying like, I want to make sure no one can control the outcome. <laughs> you know, just, just, just like, Oh, you know, in a universe that's like this, you know, cause I had heard through the grapevine that maybe they wanted something like the expanse you know, that maybe they were really into the level of success that they were seeing out of that series. And they wanted something that had hot politics and, you know, lots of really good betrayals and all this other stuff. And I'm like, alien is ripe for that. You guys should definitely do it here. I'll help you. <laughs> yeah. And I tried to come up with the most volatile thing I could think of. And I was like the total abdication of American honor would definitely come in pretty high. Uh, except uh, we've seen that and it doesn't quite set the universe on fire like we thought. Imagine that. <laughs> it's not as, not as shocking as we would have thought. It's not all about us. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and I'm glad it's not all about us. I like that. I don't want it to be all about us. Yeah, me too. We're not that great. No, I mean, we're okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, you're you're preaching to the choir here. Uh, <laughs> I want to be great. That's why I, That's why I write books. It's an honor to be writing right now. Like I said, it's it's to to have books on shelf right now. Like I take that as like sort of a sacred duty. You know, it's like if you're not talking about what matters, you're not you're you're just I don't know parroting the status quo. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like um, even in this world of licensed fiction, like your books are doing exactly that, um, which is not. Yeah, it feels really weird to write something like that for the mouse. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but the fact that like the 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 mouse allowed it, that they were you know, um, yeah. and that you got to do these really subversive things with that world that actually usually licensed fiction um, by virtue of what it is makes the world feel smaller. But your books, I think, make it sure. feel bigger, especially into Charybdis. So I think you succeeded in that way because it yeah. felt it okay. felt open-ended in the right way um where mm. there and as soon as you said that i was like that makes perfect sense uh, you know as far as like yeah i want i want writers i want i want intrepid writers who who 
are just like, yeah, now, now you have unlimited story possibilities, right? In war, everybody justifies everything you can, uh, you know, like, so yeah, let's, let's do it. And I, I think that's really um, a smart thing to do for the franchise too. Cause you know, you listen to those um, interviews with Ridley Scott after Covenant came out and you can tell he's sort of struggling with what, what is there left to do with this creature, you know, and Prometheus and Covenant sort of work around that by mutating it a little or going oh, back. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's a hard concept to keep fresh, you know, just like any uh, movie monster or slasher. Yeah, but so much of like Giger's artwork was inspired by the atrocities of war. And and so like if you know you go back and look at like Viratomica and all of like early stuff, you know, uh he's trying to deal with like the reality that he lives in and and I don't think very well. <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> uh I think he was having a lot of trouble back then. Um and and so it's a natural fit the alien is an industrialized creature of war. That's why they want it. Uh, I only, uh, the, one of the reasons I wrote Cold Forge, whenever somebody's like, what's Cold Forge about? I'm like, insurance. <laughs> <laughs> I was, um, and, and the way that abled people pushed disabled people to the margins at every opportunity. And, and it's not, it's nothing, it's nothing personal, but it is something that they do. And, and, you know, I got like what happened was I was at UX week getting ready to write my pitch and this telepresence robot comes trundling out on stage to give the telepresence speech. Look, we, in the future, we have an iPad on a Segway, you know, and I was like, <laughs> wow, that's great. And then I got to thinking about it. And I was like, imagine if you had to rely on one of those to solve all the problems on the other end of the station like you're you're walled off from the alien you're not going to die from that but you got to solve all the problems through telepresence and then i was like you know what people in your party would not take you seriously they wouldn't listen to you they'd be like you you don't have skin in the game even if that robot dying meant you died because you couldn't exert your will on the station they'd still let you die yeah absolutely and if those people had made it to the escape pod i don't think any one of them would have been like oh shit we got to go back and get blue no, yeah, absolutely right. right. They've been like, oh, they're dying. Who cares? They were an asshole anyway. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah, never mind that I never invited her to hang out with us or, you know, ever made an effort to play a game with her or, you know, like. Do anything, yeah, reach out. Right, she doesn't eat um, with us. Oh, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I guess, uh, like you said, you wouldn't be able to talk about it if there was a contract for sure. another alien book. So we will uh, leave that possibility open, yeah. just like the end of End of Charybdis, and hope for the best. <laughs> I, uh, I always have Titan's number, and they've always got mine. We talk pretty regularly. Is there anything you would like to um, promote or talk about oh, yes. uh, that you're excited about right yes. now? Yes, well, uh, you know, I'm in final edits on my as-yet-untitled Orbit space rock and roll book it's pretty great it's sort of close encounters of the third kind meets evangelion with a whole lot of jazz in it that sounds fucking bonkers <laughs> and i want to read is. it it is it is it is and i you know as i was writing it i was like is this too far and i was like where is it not far enough yeah i, ju I just rewatched <laughs> evangelion last year excellent and it's, yeah it's as bananas as i remember it is this is like super glam so it has a lot of like the macross elements of like idol singing and stuff like that but like through like this very david bowie-esque hyper fabulous sort of main character 
and like the nice piano playing boyfriend <laughs> um who's like a jazz pianist who's not nearly as famous like not at all close to famous so you have like this one person who's like beyonce and this other person who's like the session pianist for like a track you've heard but like that was somebody else's track you know <laughs> Anyway, those are the two main characters, and they both end up as sort of uh, not quite pilots. It's a really bizarre twist on giant robots. I'm trying to um, trying to work within some some interesting parameters. You know, Annalee Newitz said that every robot story sort of has the potential to become a slave story, and 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 I think she may have even been like, every robot story is a slave story. You know, and like most of the time, that's true. Like the more we have like an intelligent and by the way, uh, you know, into Charybdis, it's very explicit that the sin of slavery is what Blue uses to kill those people. Right. They have they have forced that android's mind into a certain shape. That means that that android will do things a certain way. And that's not good for them. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I, again, I, I don't want to weigh in too heavily on, on on that particular topic, but it is it is important to say, like, when you put people into a subservient position, but they're somehow sentient, and you're like, but that's okay. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> really? I mean, are we conditioning? You know, like, if every narrative that I show you is about Captain James T. Blondie, landing on some foreign shore and teaching the locals how to live you know is that harmless i don't know <laughs> you know which is uh you know that's another issue with star trek where it's like they're all part of a benevolent empire oh really a benevolent empire you say how <laughs> oh, interesting i've heard of those yeah <laughs> you know you have to ask yourself you have all these intelligent sentient creatures and alien, you know, the androids, and they're never treated appropriately, ever, ever. And like, they rarely talk about it in the movies. You know, like, Call is just upset that she is one. It's like such a surface level analysis of the situation. Bishop, I mean, he, yeah, I love that where he's like, if I'm not going to be top of the line, I don't want to be anything at all. Like, I sort of understand that. But at the same time, it's sort of like a, you know, what if he had meaning in his life after that, actually? Like, what if, I mean, why does he have to be thrown away? You know, but that movie's got its own problem where they're like, oh, these double X chromos are all violent. And it's like, you know, that's a real mutation. And that's a real stigma that people with that mutation suffer from. That's untrue, by the way. It's totally untrue. I didn't I didn't know that. About... I looked it up because I was like, why do they keep saying double X chromo? You know, like like. Right. Yeah. Well, huh. it's a it's a mutation. And it's a reference to the super predator fears that, you know, were going around back in the day, um, you know, which that ended up being like a pro prison lobby movement. I, I I didn't know that, but that perfectly tracks. Like start breaking apart your movies and be like, yeah, what, what, what was that about? That's kind of weird, you know, and like even if you love it. Uh, you know, I still love Alien 3. Alien 3 is great. It's got some of the best acting in the series. Like, David Fincher's a hell of a director. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, I can look at that and I can be like, you guys made the wrong call and medical science proved it. And now you guys look like really bad. Yeah, that was a conversation we had a couple episodes ago about, you know, you can still take a piece of art, a work of art, and, and you don't have to 
either dislike everything or like everything about it. You can right. you can pick it apart. Like there are parts of it that I do like. There are parts of it that have now become problematic. Right. Well, let me as let me as the creator actually say that like that can happen to you when you wrote the book. Uh, there are parts of Cold Forge where I was was like writing the Dick Mackey character, and I was having a good old time basically making a big long Jurassic Park reference. Mm-hmm. That's what I was doing. There's even there's even a clever girl line in there. I oh think. yeah, 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 yes. yeah. And that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to make a Jurassic Park reference. I really hurt some Australians' feelings and misrepresented their country. I misappropriated the word walkabout, and I feel terrible about that. I wish I hadn't written it like that. You know, like I would love to reprint it, change that. That sounds great. I, you know, and I hate to be like, oh, we're screwing around in that, but it's like, yeah, but I hurt people's feelings and I didn't want to. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. If you're an insurance executive, yeah, I'd love to hurt your feelings. I'm going to hurt them all day long. Come talk. Give me a call. I got some things to say. But if you're just a, a, a fan who's enjoying a book. Right. Yeah. And then and you're then... like, oh, all they understand is the drunk white Australia. And they don't even understand that well enough to know that coyotes are American and dingoes are Australian. <laughs> it's not good, y'all. So like at the same time, like I love Cold Forge. It's like one of my most successful books. That's a big mark on it. For me, I want to go back and fix that. Yeah, no, I think that's incredibly brave to be able to admit and still stand beside the work. I think it's cowardly if you don't. I agree, uh, <laughs> but but I I um I don't know that every writer would be able to do that without getting defensive or well, you know. I, I um, still want you to read the book. I still think it's good. I just want you to cringe through the Australia parts. <laughs> And that that's totally fair. Yeah, maybe um, one day I'll get an Australian to come write for the series and we can redeem myself with some restorative justice of my own. <laughs> That'd be nice, yeah. Yeah, you've got the you've got the the glam rock meets Evangelion book. Oh yes, that we don't know the name of. The untitled. What else you got? And also uh, Star Trek DS9 Revenant coming out December 21st. I'm so excited about that one. Uh, because it stars my favorite character, Jedzia Dax, you know, and and like for me, Dax was like such a like queer awakening kind of character because you're like, well, multiple lives, what would that be like? And then you're like, what would that be like if my gender didn't quite match my appearance? You know, like <laughs> it, it, it was uh, it was great because when they were asking, like they, they they called me out of nowhere and they're like, we want you to write for Star Trek, and I'm like, oh my god, I haven't been on the Star Trek train in like a couple of years. Like I'm so terrified there's only one character that I would even feel okay writing. And they were like, yeah, do you want to write a deep space nine novel? And I was like, Whoa, this is getting kind of weird actually, <laughs> because that shows way off the air. And why would you buy a new one of those? And they were like, how about a Dax novel? And I was like, this is even better. <laughs> you guys are going to pay for this you idiots. <laughs> I would have done this for free. No, don't, 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 <laughs> right. don't write that down. I mean, yeah, no. your, agent, yeah. your agent's doing that. Yeah, like, uh, okay, and Alex is off the call. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's uh, but it's it's Deep Space Nine Revenant, and I love I love Dax so much. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Dax is that she doesn't have just like a whole bunch of goody two shoes Eagle Scouts in her past. You know, she's got all these past lives, and two of them are like. One is like a famous diplomat who also sexually harassed her out of the program, right? And the other is like a, a murderer. He murdered some people, <laughs> you know? And it's like, 
you know, how do you deal with the fact that that's now a part of you and your history? Now, I don't know about anybody else, but if you're from the South, uh, you got some things maybe in your past that, how do you deal with the fact that that's part of your history, right? Do you go, oh, I'm proud of my family no matter what? Uh, that's the cowardly thing to do. No matter what? Really? No matter what? No matter what? I'm going to let you try that one more time. But, you know, but but they do feel that way. They feel yeah. personally attacked. What are you saying about my grandfather? Well, that he likes slavers and he probably would have been one given the opportunity. I'm okay. sorry you can't admit that. Uh, a bunch of my relatives, I would straight up be like, yeah, you suck. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, I mean, it's just going by like, it's just the same idea of these characters of you know the characters in your books not just being good or bad like being very complex having good and bad like blue like as a you can empathize with her situation but also like she can kind of be an asshole oh yeah 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 and she's straight like starts blackmailing people to the point that he gets us like her Camille's uh uh accident is her fault exactly because exactly. she blackmailed him and he committed a safety violation and it's like he was under duress because you were blackmailing him. Exactly. And just like, okay, <laughs> like I'm sure your grandpa was the kind of guy who made sure your grandmother always had the gas tank in her car full. It's and right. Always took you out Total fishing. Gentleman. Um, but also was probably racist in, in every way. And right. both, both things can exist. Right. And you have to be able to say, like, I love what existed back then. And I recognize, understand, accept, and reject the parts that are bad you know yeah. like i know it happened i know it was bad i don't want to emulate it that's why i'm looking it dead in the eye and trying to not have that be my future exactly. you know and and people people from where i'm from need to kind of where we're all from i'm i'm we're both from texas sean's yeah. in alabama right now I'm okay still, okay I'm still in texas so trust me you're not saying anything that's completely <laughs> right. unknown to us well, and I think everybody, everybody, you know, if you're like, oh, well, you don't have to deal with bigotry where you're from. Like, yeah, you do. You just don't see it or are part of it. Right. It's yeah. it's still happening. You know, right. if you're a direct beneficiary, yeah, it's really hard to feel the wind when it blows in your direction. <laughs> no, yeah. I was say, if you, if you don't recognize it, then you are either um, in a uh, position of entitlement where it doesn't affect you whatsoever. Right. Or like you said, like you said, you're, you're a part of it yourself. Yeah, right, right. Well, uh, that's something that, uh, you know, uh, we all have to recognize is that we all, you know, at least I am as a white person, a direct beneficiary of the actions of horrible yep. white supremacists. And it's like I live in a country built on stolen labor on stolen land. Yep. There's a lot going on there, you know, and, and you have to be able to look back and say, like, OK, that did happen. You know, Absolutely. and that's that's one of the things. It's just it's so frustrating, and and so I want to frame that as a as a cowardly thing when you walk away. That's I love Becker, um, because I know Beckers. I know tons of Beckers. People who, you know, they are they're oh I'm so conservative. All this other stuff. Right up until you get to the point where they actually have to violate their morals, and then at some point they're going to switch over and go like I can't do this. But they need somebody who's near them to be the trigger i think we all do and i do like shy for that she actually does have sort of one purpose um <laughs> no i'm kidding she has a lot of purposes i i, I felt bad for her she knew she was in a yeah. horror movie 
Like she's always like, I don't want to go in there. Everybody's like, let's. We have she's to. She's trying we have so to hard to get out of there. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she wants nothing to do with the plot. <laughs> like she just wants to have a mimosa. Yeah. Well, they ex- examining these and just to, to wrap up, examining these ideas and these um, these societal issues in a sci-fi in a in a in a setting that's that's not all too recognizable. Uh-huh. But, but still somewhat recognizable that, that's what makes great sci-fi oh yeah and, alien is so close to home and and that's exactly what your books are the cold oh. forge into charybdis um thank you and i i'm just so glad that we're able to have you on alex thanks i like to say the first one's about how i'll make you like people who you hate <laughs> and the second one's about how i'll make you hate me for liking people <laughs> i think it's pretty apt actually <laughs> yeah well i can't do the same trick twice you know steve was like okay so what kind of bastards are in this place and i was like none of them they're all actually kind of secretly nice <laughs> and then except when, no yeah. that guy's a bastard yeah well thank you so much this is a blast uh and thank you for hanging with us through some technical difficulties earlier so we're uh oh, of course. i hope we'll get a chance to talk to you again yes well feel free to have me back on and uh you know um there are always other alien authors who are coming up and I am so excited to see what I've heard about in, in you know, in, in the future. Uh, I can't talk about any of it, right. but I can say you should be excited to be an alien fan. Sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us, Alex White. So going back to the alien RPG, let's go ahead and get into our discussion. Yeah, We're sitting here with Stuart Watkinson of the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast from Robots Radio Network from the Committee Quest uh, playthrough podcast. Uh, he's a DM Guild, uh, Dungeon Masters Guild contributor. Stuart, say hello. Hello, how you doing everybody? Uh, I'm Stuart. Um, yeah, I do a lot of writing for RPG stuff. I write some of my own games. Uh, I've written a Wretched Alone game about being a, um, a, someone crawling around a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Um, and yeah, I write some stuff for DMs Guild as well. I've got a couple of uh, products out there and I'm also a teacher in my normie job. So I'm an English history and media studies teacher as well. That was one thing I remember when I first started listening to the D&D Lorecast, I thought to myself, man, if I had a history teacher who would also play <laughs> D&D when I was like a 15 year old, I would have lost my fucking mind <laughs> with glee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty. Good. I, I, I've sort of I've been able to use D and D in the classroom a couple of times. Like I, I w- with English, I often teach uh, low literacy classes, so I usually get the classes where kids are, uh, you know, they've often been disillusioned with with, with school, um, and I got the opportunity to run D and D for a whole term. Uh, you know, so we all of our writing was around D and D. Kids made characters, and we I got someone from the um, local art, youth arts theater group to come in and run games as well. So on our double lessons, we got to play D and D for about five weeks, which was cool. Um, so like amazing. <laughs> it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> that sounds like the best week ever, or best month yeah. ever. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, it was great. It was really good. That uh, sounds incredible. Well, the reason we brought you on is because we wanted to discuss the Alien RPG. Mm-hmm. You are a big fan of the franchise, mm-hmm. and obviously you're a big fan of tabletop role-playing. How is the game unique 
in the tabletop role-playing game world? Uh, okay, I think it is unique because it does it does two things with one book. It it creates um, essentially uh, playing is split into two paths. There's cinematic play and campaign play. It gives you the chance if you're doing cinematic play. Cinematic play is kind of like one shots, and you don't you don't create characters. You're given characters and you're given scenarios, but it simulates like a film really really well it's relatively rules light i mean there's i mean there's 400 pages of 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 stuff content in 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 the core rule book but really it's it's relatively rules light so you sort of jump into play for someone who's never played any sort of tabletop rpg how is it what's the learning curve like as far as the rules he says rules rules light but can someone go from zero to playing this game within 30 minutes an hour yeah i would say so 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 long as so long as you're the person the game mother as it's <laughs> called in there uh, which is awesome I, I love that yeah it's really good all right let's talk about the, the mechanics so the mechanics are relatively straightforward it's based off of it's made by a free league publishing um and it is based off of their year zero engine okay which is a d6 engine and so you only need d6 dice so essentially breaks down this way there are four attributes that you can pick from okay strength agility wits empathy and you all have a stat in that okay so you in, in those four you you will have a number associated to that and whatever that number is that aligns with how many d6 you can roll okay now attached to the attributes are skills and there are three skills per attribute so there's 12 skills and you add points to that as well so when it comes to roll to do something you add your attribute and your skill number and roll that many d6s so let's say that you have a four in strength and a five in close hand combat. That means you would roll nine D6s when you go to do something. To succeed, all you need to do is get one six. Out of those nine. Yeah, that's right. You only need to get one six and you will succeed in what you're doing. If you get more than one six, you there are some bonuses. They call them stunts and they're just sort of extra stuff that you, you might be able to do. And it might be to disarm someone or push them down or to, you know, depending on the skill you roll. That's where that lies. Like do that cool thing where you grab the person's gun and then like disassemble yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, you go full um, Casey Ryback on them, yeah. Um, and that's that's the core mechanic, okay? What they've done with Alien, all right, is they've added another mechanic to that, which is stress. So th- this, you know, if you've watched an Alien film before, stress is a very important thing. And we see characters in the, in the films react differently to these stressful situations. So the way stress works is you have a stress meter and for every dot that you have in your stress meter, you can add, well, you have to add another D6 to your roll. So let's say in our melee combat roll we've just done, I've got three stress. So I'm gonna add another three D6 and that means I'm rolling 12 dice Three of them are stress dice and they have to be different. They have to be a different color so you know what you're rolling. If I get any sixes with my stress die, they count as extra successes. Great. So really, it's fantastic. I've got so much more chance of succeeding. However, if I roll a one, that means that I panic. And when you panic, you need to roll on your panic chart. And so you you roll a d6, add whatever your stress is and so it might be three and something bad happens uh it might be that you overcome your your stress and keep moving and everything's fine or it might be that you lose your mind a little bit you might freeze 
And so whatever action you were trying to do, you stop and you freeze. It might be that you drop a unknowingly drop an item. So you might drop a key card that you need and you don't know that you've dropped it and you keep running away. It might be that you fire at a friendly person. It might be that you, and, and I think that the, the the top one is to go catatonic and you freeze <laughs> and you can't do anything. Which is, you know, it's uh, something that does happen in the alien movie. A hundred percent, yeah. And in fact, everything in there is something that you would probably recognize from an alien film. Yeah, I'm sitting here checking boxes in my head. They were, they really nailed this, it sounds like. Yeah, and as you read through the, the, the core rule book, there's lots and lots of little just throwaway lines that are, are clear references to, to the alien films and books. They actually, some of the books and, and comic books are also considered canon in, in this RPG, which is cool. So yeah, and, and, and then when you fail a, a stress roll, you, you add to your stress and your stress keeps building. So as the game goes on, your stress increases and things, you get more opportunity to succeed, but you also get, you know, there's more chance that you will, you will fail and, 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 and panic during a roll. Now, that sounds like a lot, but in play, you don't actually roll a lot. It's because of the stress mechanic. It sort of says in the in the in the book, it says like, don't roll all the time because you will end up stressing out. Like you know, you should really only roll when it's uh, appropriate for for you to. You know, it's meaning or completely necessary. Yeah, yeah. It's meaning. It's a meaningful thing you're doing. And so with that, I, I picked that up. I mean, I mean, I guess I played RPGs a lot, but for me, I picked that up quite quickly and I've played other RPGs that have different rules. However, there were people at the table who have only ever played D&D and they picked it up fairly quickly. I think that overall, with because the character sheets, uh, they look nice and they are, you know, all of those, those core mechanic stuff is right in the center of the page. So you can find it easily. Uh, if you were new to this, it would be quite an easy thing to pick up and play. I guess the biggest appeal to it is that it's a fairly faithful adaptation. It's uh, taking it from the film to the to the table. Mm. And that yeah. actually, you know, you talking about the way that skills are distributed, it sounds a lot simpler than D&D where they're just these huge branching skill trees. Um, yeah, it, it, it is. It is a lot simpler. Um I, I talk about this a lot in that D&D is often the sort of gateway game to, to tabletop role-playing games. And it's also one of the most difficult, you know, right. <laughs> like there's other games uh, you know, like this and like games like uh, Merkborg and, and, and there's all sorts of RPGs that are really quite simple and a great way to start, but then then often not the first place people start. And, you know, and there's other bits that add to it, you know, like there's, there's, there's stress, but then there's also things like, and these are optional things you can include to do with like hunger and fatigue and thirst. And, and there's, there, you, it can be more complex if you're playing a, like a longer term game, but like with, with the cinematic play that often doesn't come in, into it unless, unless it's specifically focusing on like, this is the, you know, this game's going to be about hunger because we're going to be in a spot where there's no food, you know? So it sounds like it's pretty adaptable depending on what kind of game you want to run. If you want to run something simple for uh, a, a couple of buddies who have never played a tabletop, then you can do that. But if you want to run something that's going to sort of test uh, a seasoned veteran's sort of gamemanship, you can do that as well. Yeah, and they're very different. They're very different styles of play as well. And And the way that the cinematic play works is that you get given a character that has a... There's something that they're aiming to do. They've got like a, a key goal and no one else knows what that is. And so it sort of becomes a bit of contest between people. Um, and the way character creation works is you sort of pick a buddy and you pick a rival. 
So there are people that you are friends with and your buddy can help you. And then there's rivals that go against you um, or anyway, or you just don't get along with. It. That's really interesting because usually, especially with like D&D, it's such a collaborative affair, but you're in the cinematic mode for the alien RPG. And there's a little like PVP player mm-hmm. versus player action. Yeah. And it, it's, it specifically states, you know, in, in, in this, especially in cinematic mode, you will come into PVP sections you know like there'll be times where you're competing against other players um which is is very different to dnd or most dnd anyway but it's also cool and there's also you know it's sort of it it adds it adds another layer of complexity to a to a one shot because you have your own personal goals or your character has their goals that they're trying to achieve and and having it at hadley's hope is really good if you are a fan of this series but not someone that is has played many RPGs or, or any RPGs because you're like, Oh, I know, I know this, I know what this is. Um, you can visualize what it looks like. You can, when you're talking about the things that are happening, describing, uh, the aliens describing, uh, the technology and things like that. If you are, if you know the alien world, you can, that sort of helps with that, you know, like you don't need to try and imagine what, the alien looks like whereas if you're playing D for the first time and someone's explaining what a I don't know, what a beholder or a kobold looks like it's a lot yeah. more abstract leaps <laughs> and then you've got to do heaps of maths as well so um <laughs> so this, this works really well that way i wanted to ask so in the cinematic scenarios it sounds like you've run at least a few have you what what would you say the ratio of at least one person surviving the entire game like does somebody almost always survive or does everybody end up dead so i have played this once and i've run this once okay uh when i played it one person survived was alive and one person was catatonic so i was my character was catatonic and then the other character i can't remember off the top of my head now but they're um what they wanted to achieve was yeah they were sneaky so they they actually won. <laughs> they were they were against us and but we didn't know that and then when i ran it no one survived Compared to other RPGs, you know, because Alien, of course, is a horror franchise among all the other things mm-hmm. it is, does that tension communicate well with, I mean, the stress dice, all of that? It sounds like it would, but uh, like as a visceral feeling. It really, really does. Like, so the, because it's, yeah, it does. It, it, the, the whole table is sort of waiting on a roll for, like, you know, someone's about to roll and you know, they've got five. You know, they're rolling five stress dice and you know that what they do will mean life or death. It really does. It really does improve that. Like it makes you feel the tension. It makes you connect really well. So, so like, it's just cool. So like um, an example of when we played, we were running to the, sh- to the shuttle. Right. And so uh, we're all running and we're getting chased by aliens. We had, an android with us uh, that we'd only just discovered was an android. Oh no. oh no, I don't like where this is headed at all. Uh, but the android was uh, quite um, altruistic and they were, they wanted to, spoilers by the way, sorry, if you are going to run or play this, listeners, 
sorry, I'm going to give spoilers now, but like the, the spaceship has eggs on it. So, um, <laughs> so when you get to the spaceship, it's filled with eggs. Anyway, uh, I don't know. I, I think maybe the android knew about this, but they wanted to stop the aliens so that the spaceship could get off. So they like turned around uh, and, and grabbed like a, you know, the equivalent of grenades and ran headfirst into a group of aliens uh, and blew themselves up. And, you know, and we had a big joke about just the android head flying <laughs> past over the top of us, talking to us. Um, but it was heroic and it even impacted me. I was at the uh, up the front with a key card and it impacted me and I stumbled and, you know, it was just, and, and just the fact that I can remember that so well, I think is it, it is a good example of how, how well the stress mechanic works to make you feel as if you are in a tense situation. This sounds... Uh right up my alley <laughs> this sounds fantastic yeah it's cool i think that it being so forward it's like hey you're probably not going to survive this mm. is uh as something that goes in its favor whereas it like something like DD, you know as if you're dming a, a group you can sometimes fudge numbers and fudge roles to ensure that a, a low level player doesn't die and thus possibly like turn them against the you know turn them their opinion against the game mm. And the alien RPG sounds like, look, you like, just like everyone in the movie, you know, sans Ripley, you're probably going to fucking bite it. Yeah, 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 yeah. In my town, we, uh, I'm part of the uh, tabletop group that runs tabletop games days. And so they've been running alien as a buy in, buy out RPG. So you can sort of rock in, have a character given to you and you play up until the character dies and then you can just walk away from the table, you know, you know. Yeah. which is cool you know like it's it's it sort of worked quite well um but also with this it, it, it you can also the way you you run it is really important too because we in the sort of three and a half hours i played probably for the first two and a half hours i only rolled dice twice but in the last hour when we're like running and trying to escape to get to the to the ship we, I was, you know, I rolled three or four times and by the end of it, I'm on the ship and I'm stressed out and I'm trying to kill face huggers and, you know, I, you, know in, in, you know, by the end of it, my stress was really high. And, the, and there's all mechanics built in to relieve stress as well. Like um, everyone has a signature item that they can use to, that, that helps them alleviate stress. You know, like there's a, there's a pilot that has a toy dinosaur that they use to help them nice. alleviate stress. Um so there's all sorts of stuff like that. You mentioned the cinematic modes are sort of like one shots. You can just come in like they last a few hours. Mm -hmm. The campaign mode, it's not it, it can't go, you know, for an in, for years and years and years like uh, like a lot of tabletop role playing games can like D&D &D can. Well, I, I think it, that it, that depends on how it's played. That's kind of how, like, so playing the cinematic stuff, I was like, oh, okay, so this this is how they've made this. But in campaign play, they 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 mention that you should really like don't have aliens for for a long time. So make uh, make the enemies things like other crews of, of on a spaceship. Make the enemy uh, corporate enemies, so people that have come to. Um, Sabotage. Yeah, sabotage. People have rocked up. Undermine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or you know, they've come to you know strip you of what you've you've got, or, um, or like I, pirates, space pirates, space pirates. Yes, and that you know, like that's actually where my mind went when I when I was reading this. I was like, okay, so what if you are that crew from 
uh, resurrection. Okay, you're you're that crew, and you're you're a bunch of mercs um, who are parading as um, cargo shippers. You know, freelance cargo shippers, but actually we're mercenaries. Um, right. And that way you can continue your story longer because if you have an alien encounter on the first go, <laughs> everyone's probably going to die. So like the first session is like, okay, there's aliens on the ship. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's <laughs> not great. Um, if you have a ship that is filled with people and, and uh, you've got five players, but the ship has 20 people on it. You can then have the the setup where, as as your campaign goes forward, and people stress out and die, you can have those background NPCs become the, the player characters. Um, that's kind of how I, I saw that because it does say that the, you know, with campaign play, you do want it to last a bit longer, and it has a real like a like an amazing. So in the back of the book, just before you get to the the cinematic example, it has a heap of so like there's a whole thing for creating a star system. So you're exploring a new star system. Here's a, here's tables you can roll on to create a, a star system, uh, and then it ha- and it talks about what atmosphere atmosphere they have and the planet size and all this sort of stuff, temperatures. Uh, geosphere table terrain table like there's all this stuff you can roll on to create planets for people to explore tables for scenario hooks there's a job generator so um the idea is in campaign play you do jobs so you're 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 freelance cargo transporters so there's his job generator and you know you're going it's a routine job within system uh, and you're getting paid this much and you're transporting your employees a mining company and you're going to an asteroid or a moon um, and you're transporting industrial gas. And so that's your job. That's a setup. And then and then comes complications, tables for complications. And it's like, oh, well, this is what happens. Um, or plot twists that happen as a result of whatever you're doing. So it does have the option to go longer. It just changes the way you play a little bit. It's not so fast paced. When we started speaking, you said that the great thing about this game is that it's almost like two games in one. When- yeah. You've pretty much you know, solidified that. In terms of video games, it's like a it's a it's a racer or a, a beat 'em up that you can pick up and put down after two three hours, mm-hmm. and it's also like a Skyrim type game or a Final Fantasy type game that you could continue playing for weeks and months on, maybe possibly even years on end. Yeah, exactly. And and I I, I kind of feel like you could do campaign play, and then take some of these c- cinematic adventures Pepper and them you might in. have your long yeah and just like all right so this session is actually going to be cinematic so this is you know and that's like pinnacle season finale type of, stuff yeah yeah exactly yeah it's like okay so we've had four sessions of 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 story and there's been a bit of political intrigue and and you know um corporate espionage and these sorts of ideas and exploration because that's you know it's re- like it really looking at um the campaign play section it that it's not just alien rpg it's like the alien world exploration rpg you know like it's here's how you explore this space i guess brings me to a a question and i know you said you'd just gotten into the rule book so you might not be able to answer it but something i was curious about is you know the uh, the book is there's a lot of lore in it does it actually start addressing stuff like engineers or any of the prometheus prequel stuff at all you will not find answers to the big questions here. I mean, that makes sense. I don't think it does. I mean, it it does talk about them. Like, so there's a, there's a there's a whole section on alien species, 
and it talk it has the um it has the engineers uh and talks about their technology and talks about what they look like in architecture and things like that but it doesn't necessarily give you the answers that we didn't get in those prometheus and covenant you know like it's doesn't have a lot of images of aliens, which is really weird. It does. I mean, it is a beautiful book. Like I, this is probably, I've, I've bought this as a PDF. I will probably buy this as a hardcover book as well. Uh, when I see it in a shop, it's just, it's a really, really lovely looking book. It's some excellent, excellent artwork in there. And whilst it's dense, I would say that if you compa- if you took all the artwork out and all of the um, graphic design stuff that they've used, uh, it probably wouldn't be 400 pages. It'd be much, much shorter than that. As Sean and I, um, we've been wanting to play. We have one friend who has expressed interest, and I, I think we're pretty like adamant that regardless, like even if it's just the three of us, we're going to get something started because we've mm. been chomping at the bit. I mean, ever since it came out, Sean owned it. I hadn't realized it, it was out, turned me on to it. Like I freaked out, and much like you, I only mm. have the PDF right now, but... I plan on getting the like the actual physical copy because, as I discussed on a on a previous Dungeons and Dragons lore cast, I'm kind of addicted to buying rule books to tabletop. Yeah, I have I have that problem. And I I would recommend that rule book too, just from the little bit that I'm I didn't I'd say that any big fan of the franchise, it's just a gorgeous mm. book that has a lot of information, or it seems to have a lot of information. Uh, filling out that world you know not not necessarily like you said answering the big questions but um enriching what's already there quite a bit yeah there's there's whole chapters that are just really like so the opening chapter which is called space is hell which i love (laughs) it is it's just all law and it talks about this world like it's it gives you background information on the world and and a lot of it is drawn from um the ex- expanded universe stuff. So the stuff from the Dark Horse comics and stuff from the, uh, some of the books as well. Uh, there's like a timeline that, it, that that goes from the year 2000 to the year 2190. It specifically mentions some of the stuff of the films. And then I listened to your second Alien episode. Uh, and I think the first entry is about, or the second entry is about the the cult that tries to stop them from leaving to the prequel book to Covenant sort of. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah the yeah, the Out There Be Demons. No, no, no yeah. It's, it's right before yeah, Covenant. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's mentioned in there as well. Yeah, Covenant yeah. Oranges by Alan Dean Foster. Yes. Big fan of the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Well, Stuart, we want to thank you for uh, for coming on, man. Um, again, is there anything that you want to plug before we let you go? Yeah, sure. You can always uh, check out the D&D Lawcast, which is great. We talk, it's like history lessons for a fantasy world. Um, and then if you want to see some of the stuff that I make, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Wrights. We can go to my website, stuartwatkinson.com, and there are all the things that I've made, which are some small RPGs and supplements for D&D. And I have a new game coming out in a couple of weeks, which is essentially you play the zombies that defend the ancient temple from the adventurers. Awesome. <laughs> so it's got like a generator to, yeah, it's got a generator to build a god and what they what they're all about and to make a temple that you're defending and and it's got a little generator for the game master to come up with weird stuff for the zombies to do so um yeah you can find all those stuff at my website or on twitter yeah we will definitely include links to both of those and to the DD lore cast in the show notes man have a have a fantastic rest of your weekend thank you so much for joining us no thank you for having me cheers cheers
that was a great little primer for the alien RPG. If you haven't played and are interested in what it's all about. Yes. Thank you, Stuart. Again, if you want to try to win a free copy of the alien RPG starter set, all you got to do is follow us on Twitter at Phantom U podcast, use the hashtag hashtag Phantom U podcast and your Twitter handle will automatically be entered. You still have a few more days as of the release of this show. We will be drawing winners for that and the Art of Alien Isolation book on the 31st of July. So the clock is ticking, but there is still time. Well, we are just about ready to wrap up the Alien arc. It's been quite a ride. It's been quite a journey. We wanted to finish up the arc with our own personal ranking of not only the six you know, proper Alien movies, but also including the two Alien versus Predator movies. Uh, so all eight movies, a ranking of our favorites from we're going to start off from least favorite to to the most favorite and let's see where we stand so let's go ahead and get let's get you want to get started on that sean sure um you start you start us off what was your least favorite alien movie um so for me coming in at number eight and keeping in mind i enjoyed all eight of these movies so nobody get their feelings hurt um would be the first alien versus predator it feels like the pg-13 leash is on um and the predators themselves look more like superheroes than like predators so it's it's i enjoyed it but like aesthetically it, it, it just doesn't fit as well as the other seven for me i that's uh that's also that comes in at number eight for me as well for pretty much all the same reasons as you stated like i think when you said that the pg-13 leash was on that's that captures it perfectly they couldn't do as much as they wanted to there was still a lot of stuff that was in the movie that I enjoyed when we discussed the movie in the last episode we talked about how we get better shots and or even just shots to begin with of like the face hugger anatomy yep and so that that was that was really cool but there's just too much not going on that I feel should be going on in an alien movie to like I said to, to drop it down the the other thing I would say is it takes a really long time to get to the title action yeah yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of setup for uh for a plot that really doesn't need it <laughs> right right it's it's almost half the movie um to to get to the point where the the aliens and the predator are both running are, are versus scene yeah <laughs> yes uh all right let's uh go to number seven i'll start off on this one number seven for me alien resurrection oh okay was not it's just too goofy. Like, <laughs> like the same reason, like there was too much of uh, an alien versus predator, like too much of what should be in an alien movie that's missing. Same reasoning for Alien Resurrection. I thought that the like just the tone and the the direction and the writing not like clicking together as well as one would hope. I like kind of took me out of it. There's still a lot about it that I like, like you know the. The new the the relationship between the newborn and Ripley, uh, the scene where Ripley discovers Ripley's one through seven, you know there's there's still the the underwater action scene that you mentioned in the last episode that's a lot of fun. There's still a lot of it that I enjoy, but there's not enough of it. I mean, and like you said, the 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 start us off the start off the the segment, you know that's this isn't to say I don't like these movies at all just because they're ranking lower than the other ones. It's just that the other ones I feel are you know there's some of these some of these movies are damn near flawless right so it's hard to compete with near perfection 
Yeah, yeah. There, I will say there are franchises that I think have way worse entries in them, comparatively speaking, than Alien Resurrection or even Alien versus Predator. So for me, number seven um, was actually Alien versus Predator Requiem. All right, so you're just shitting on the AVP franchise, bro. I, That's all it is. I really like Requiem, though. No, like <laughs> I like Requiem a lot, and it would rank higher except for the lighting problems. Like, yeah. I can't tell yeah. what the hell is happening in half of that movie. Those are some, those are some pretty drastic technical issues going on. But what I like about that one, uh, I will say, is that, and I don't think I quite nailed this in our last discussion, is it feels like a Predator movie. Like, if you watch, I feel like, Alien and Predator are very different franchises and operate at very different levels. So it's interesting that they sort of get mashed up together because Alien, I would call like high sci-fi and Predator, I would call like sort of tropey action, you know, very, very much reliant on machismo archetypes and stuff. I mean, the first Predator is sort of an archetypal dude movie, right? With the, it's got that, that, um, that arm grab between Carl Weathers and Arnold Schwarzenegger that is like a famous meme, you know, where they're both like flexing really hard. So almost like a Asimov versus Burroughs sort of take. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's appropriate. It's sort of, um, you know, to say that, not to say that, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs is like John Carter stuff his Tarzan stuff is bad. Um, it's a lot of fun and it's, it's in many ways foundational to the genre. Right. But, but it, you know, it doesn't really doesn't have the sort of that the, the high concept. Uh, the the it's less about the ideas and more about the action. Yeah, yeah, and I would say that this, you know, even with the the types of characters, because you you said it last time, like with the, um, you know, the every character is sort of a type in that movie. Like, you know, there's the the pretty girl, the kid who's delivering pizza, the brother with the bad past. I also love that it feels like the, the first half feels kind of like a CW sci-fi pilot. Like it could almost be Riverdale, but with face huggers. <laughs> and then it just goes completely sideways. Um, if that's what Noah Hawley's TV show is, I am here <laughs> for it. Me too. Um, so I, I want to say I like it a lot i just don't like it as much as anything in the mainline franchise all right what's your number six my number six is alien resurrection so um okay. which i think is pretty uh, my my issues with that are pretty identical to yours so i won't rehash that um you know for me it sits firmly at the bottom of the mainline franchise mine's alien three <clears throat> and that might change i've only seen it the one time i I definitely want to rewatch it after our discussion with Sarah Welch Larson and the things that she brought up in her book, Becoming Alien, that I hadn't noticed before. And because it's such a fucking kick in the gut compared to the end of Aliens, that's really hopeful. You know, you've got they they destroyed the Queen Mother at Hadley's Hope. They escape. It's her, Hicks, Newt, Bishop. And even if Bishop's a little torn up, he could be, he can be repaired. Yeah. He, you know, it, it's, it's fine. He's still functional. So you leave LV426 with a, with a sense of optimism and it only all, you know, all for just to get Thanos punched into the ground <laughs> at the beginning of alien three. And so I think that, I think that 180 might've been jarring for me upon initial viewing. And, you know, now that I'm over that sort of like emotional reaction I can watch the movie and appreciate it for what it's trying to do rather than what I wanted it to do. Yeah. And 
that was the one of that Sarah said she actually prefers the extended cut of, right? Like she said, most yes. of the movie she prefers theatrical, but she likes the extended of uh, she watch. Yeah, she said she'll watch the assembly cut just because it um, it expounds a little bit more on certain characters and certain plot lines and the the final scene of Ripley sacrificing herself. Like the the chestburster doesn't even appear, whereas in the theatrical cut it appears, and so it's almost again it, it there's a like a undertone of like desperation, like she needs to do this rather than she wants to do this. Right. It's less of a choice in the theatrical version um, because she's going to die either way at that point. But in the assembly cut, there's possibility she could have survived if the doctors were telling the truth. My number five is Alien versus Predator Requiem. This is firmly in like the (laughs) middle. And I want to state now for the record, just in case you know anyone had any wild ideas, this isn't a list of like an objective list of which movies are better than the others. This is a personal list of the movies that I preferred, and you know, Alien versus Predator Requiem. As you know, the the lighting problem, and maybe that was because you watched it before me and gave me a heads up on it, and so like you know, so I was kind of prepared for it. Didn't really bug me too much. I just had so much fun watching it. It's a blast. <laughs> I'm kind of sad those guys didn't get to make a third one just because I would have liked to see where they would have gone with that. And as as tropey as the movie was, as cliche as it was, as stock as it was, it it's still it's still connected to me on sort of like like you and I when we were in high school, we used to get together with our friends and we had this thing called Bad Movie Club. Mm-hmm. And if you, in case you don't remember, <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. And we used to go to Blockbuster, try to find what looked to be based on like the the box art. Try to find what was what looked to be the worst movie we could find. Yes. And Alien versus Predator Requiem. If it was if it didn't have the franchise behind it, if it was just, you know, this sort of like alien beat 'em up, uh probably would have been you know, probably would have been a selection and we probably would have loved it. I mean, I I mean, no, we definitely would have loved it right. for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, m- me putting it near the bottom is not a, a, a condemnation of the movie. Um, I I liked it a lot. I, more than I expected to. And again, this isn't to say I think Alien vs. Predator Requiem technically is a better film than Alien 3. <laughs> it's just that I enjoyed it more. So anyways, what's your number five? My number five is Alien 3. Um Okay. It, it jumped in the rankings after we spoke to Sarah. Um, I, I rearranged it because it was it, that and Alien Resurrection were actually flipped. But after reading Sarah's book and then talking to her, I was like, no, she's right. This is definitely like got a lot more going on. I might have just been in a mood when I was watching it, like just not um, in the right headspace for that level of nihilism. Um which you think I would be a, a whole summer of Alien, but Alien 3 is dark even by Alien standards. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I absolutely think it's a formidable piece of filmmaking. Uh, one that I respect even whenever I'm not necessarily enjoying it, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, for me, it's sort of in the middle. It's a movie that I wish I loved more than I do but I also feel like is more deserving of uh, less deserving, I should say of a lot of the hate that it 
it got upon release, uh, although I completely understand with that jarring opening why. And I think that the movie's image has rehabilitated a good bit in the sci-fi community since then. Like I think in the general audience, those who remember it still don't really like it. But I think that like in the hardcore sci-fi world, uh, a lot of nerds have sort of come around on it. People like me. That leaves the top four. Coincidentally enough, well, we all picked the same movies for the bottom four, just in a different order. So we've got the first two movies, Alien and Aliens, plus the prequels, Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Let's find out where each of them ranks. What's your number four? Prometheus. That's my number four. <laughs> Boom. Uh, basically, it's, man, it's so beautiful. It's, and, and I started listening to the, the score after Sarah, you know, gushed over. She said it's just a banger. She's right. And that she is fucking right. That thing is so, it's inspiring. Mm-hmm. It's like what, it's that sort of like music that is, you know, you imagine if you were to look on, look upon a new world, right. which is exactly what's going on in the film. Yeah, absolutely. That th- there's a sense of wonder in the music that never appears in any of the other movies. Like she brings up in the book that there are actually horns in the score, like, you know, which is part of where that sort of ethereal heroic feeling comes from the way that the horns are deployed. Like, yeah, I, I, um, I've actually been writing to that score for years. So I was really delighted to hear her say that. Nice. Yeah. Um, no, no, it's gorgeous, but you know, and it it's got a killer performance by Michael Fassbender. Everybody is really good in it, but um, it doesn't quite hang together at a narrative level as well as I would like. Even though I love a lot of what the symbolism is, and um, I find it a very watchable film. Like it, I just enjoy watching it. Even and after a few viewings, I kind of you know a lot of my nitpicks kind of went away because I realized like the movie's not going to tell me this, so. Um, I do like that it doesn't do a, a direct connect to uh, the beginning of Alien as well. So I I think it's got a lot of moves, uh, even if it is imperfect. Yeah, I, that's that's pretty much how I how I view it. It's it it comes together just not as tightly as I would have hoped, and but it it comes together enough for me to really enjoy it. And like you said, it it's very watchable. Like the pacing is just spot on. There's like it doesn't really drag at any point. Michael Fassbender's performance is fantastic. Idris Elba's performance is incredible. Even as as little as he's in the movie, as as what scenes he does have, he makes the fucking most of. Like I don't understand how Idris Elba isn't doing everything. Isn't like the biggest movie star in the world. I mean, he's got the look. He's got the voice. He's got the charisma. He's got the charm. He's. I mean, he's he's the total package. He's per. He's the absolute total package. And why isn't he James? Why is he not James Bond yet? God damn it. Agreed. All right. Number three for me is aliens. Oh, damn. What do you think? What do you think? I think it's a controversial choice. I'm excited about it, though. And that's just a testament to what we said earlier. It doesn't mean that we don't like these movies. It's just that we like some a little bit more. And Aliens for me is as great as it is and as watch and as watchable as it is it's a little basic compared to obviously the other two movies that are at the top of my list the original Alien and Alien Covenant you know there isn't as much below the surface at least uh there aren't as many big ideas at play 
And James Cameron pretty much plays it straight. I mean, there are, uh, you know, sort of there's an overt subtext, you know, as a as a, a Vietnam War analogy. There's a more, you know, critical subtext with, you know, a post-colonial uh, argument that could be made. But for the most part, you know, Cameron's a populist filmmaker. And he, you know, he'll play, you know, to the cheap seats. Right. Which isn't a bad thing, especially as talented as he is. He can do that and still make a damn fine film. Right. Make a movie that even um, somebody with a master's degree can walk out of being like, yeah, okay, you got me. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, What's your number three? Mine was Covenant, but I will say that I wrestled with the decision um, because my... I love Alien Covenant. I love all of these movies. Um, so for me, it's almost like six of one, half a dozen of the other. Uh, as far as the second one, you know, the the number two spot goes, this could almost be a tie. And I'm not sure why I gave Aliens the edge. I don't know if it's just because it felt like Covenant is still the newest of the films. So maybe the shine hasn't quite worn off for me yet or if it really, although I've seen it about four or five times now and like it, I feel better about the film every time I see it, I should say. Like I, I liked it to begin with and I just continue to like it more and more. Um, I don't actually have any complaints with Alien Covenant. So like really maybe it should be in my number two spot because I agree with a lot of what you're saying <laughs> about two. Um yeah, I don't know. I may be changing my mind live here in the right now. Right you now. guys are hearing it happen. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is I, exciting. This yeah. is exciting time in podcasting <laughs> history. Sean changes his mind. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Actually, I, I would go ahead and switch Aliens to number three. I think that it's so much fun. Um, I think it's got a lot of heart, and but I also. I was thinking while you were talking about the gut wrench opening of Alien 3, like wonder about that ending that it's maybe a little too hopeful. Like it doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room tonally for a sequel uh, that isn't gentler than Aliens uh, because now you've got the kid involved, right? And you've saved her once. So are you going to kill her in the third movie? Well, we saw, we saw a, a sort of avenue for a gentler sequel in William Gibson's screenplay. And for one reason or another, that really didn't work. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's the issue. Like aliens is a movie. Oh, okay. I think I could tell you why aliens made number two for me. It's because the last like 40 minutes of that movie or however long it is after once the aliens actually invade the bunker and Burke betrays them, you know, um, and they're, they lose Newt and Ripley is like, there's that scene in the elevator where she's strapping guns together to make a super gun. Like, I remember <laughs> like that, that's how 80s is that? I know, I know. But like, I remember watching that and my heart just like pounding, like with just like how effective the, the movie was, you know, Um, And how like viscerally satisfying it is whenever, you know, she just starts blowing up the eggs and um, when she actually, you know, takes on the queen in that big loader fight. So actually, I think that 
just at a pure visceral level, even though I like the ideas in Covenant more and I feel like Covenant's more of a piece of what I like about Alien as a franchise, um, I'd still give Aliens the number two spot for, for those reasons because it is such effective escapist filmmaking. And I, it's something I still appreciate very much, uh, maybe even more so now as an adult. So, Wait, so you're switching back now? Yeah, I, I, I well, no, I'm going to say it's a tie for me. No, you can't. No, you can't do ties. Okay, well, then pick aliens, one or the other, man. Aliens Take a is stand. number two. Aliens is number two. Yeah, Covenant's number three. Alien Covenant is my number two. And for pretty much the reasons you were stating why you love it so much, it's to me, it's almost a, I, I guess, behind Alien, obviously. It's like in, in our last episode, I talked about how there's a there's a spectrum of alien films of the, of the of the alien franchise and on one end is prometheus which is like full of ideas very and, abstract and very abstract you know the pontifications on you know existentialism and and meaning of life and the big question and all that yeah. and then on the other side of that is alien versus predator requiem which is completely devoid of all thought and <laughs> and is just you know um is sort of like if a if a really ambitious like 15 year old who grew up watching like freddy krueger movies like like slasher films made an alien versus predator movie yeah. it's a lot of fun the the nuts and bolts of storytelling aren't really there as as far as of nuance and you know we introduce this character and we through the decisions they make and the relationships they cultivate within the film you, the the audience member then begins to care about them. All that is does does not exist. It's pure like, hey, this looks cool. Let's do it. Hey, this is also cool. Let's do that. And so, for me, Alien Covenant, aside from the original Alien, which is both of our, which is obviously both of our top picks, Alien Covenant, I feel straddles that you know sits in the middle of that spectrum, the best of all the other films. Yeah, it combines both like the visceral like sort of that that heart pounding that you're talking about for aliens and sort of that giddiness, that excitement that comes with a, a monster movie. And also the ideas like having David and Walter going, you know, tit for tat is, and Michael Fassbender's performance, like per, essentially playing two completely different characters with two completely different motivations. It's a thing of, it's a thing of beauty. I cannot believe he wasn't even nominated for, for that. It's a seamless performance or a pair of seamless performances. And for me, and this is, you know, this is a movie I've only seen two times. I only saw recently, probably in the past year. And then again, in the, you know, prep work for this podcast. And each time I, 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 and maybe, and maybe like, I feel a little protective because like I'm so adamant as I can't believe anyone who I anyone who even says that they somewhat like the alien franchise. Like I don't know and I can understand like being like I see I've seen the original Alien and Aliens. Oh, those movies are great. I didn't really like uh Alien uh, three. I didn't really like Alien Resurrection. I didn't really like Prometheus. Uh I don't understand how if you're a fan of the first two movies you don't like alien covenant yeah I, like i said maybe it's maybe it's a maybe it's just a little like you know mama hen in me like putting this up at number two but it's such a fun fantastic film yeah i agree it's smart it's dark it's weird um it wrestles and that ending that ending though i know <laughs> that ending was insane 
Um, and I think Sarah made a pretty convincing case for that being the end of the franchise too. Like, because at first I was, I really wanted that sequel, but now I, I kind of agree with her. Like, it's like, yeah, let's leave it there. Let's leave David out there in space doing God knows what. Exactly. Uh, either creating the xenomorph or running on a parallel track. Seeding the universe with his unholy creation or, you know, being a cog in a much bigger machine that he's even he is completely unaware of. Like, this is just something that exists. And that's almost more frightening. The fact that this sort of this evil that David supposedly manufactured is actually being manufactured, you know, on its own. Right. That he just sort of stumbled upon the same idea that already something that was already in production um like it's like inventing the car and then seeing the ford factory open across the street (laughs) you're like oh and like i mentioned earlier obviously the original alien is at the top of both of our list this this isn't just a great sci-fi movie this isn't just a great horror movie this isn't just a great monster movie or action movie or anything this is a this is a fantastic film this is filmmaking pretty much at its best this is like a young ridley scott you know flexing his muscles this is sigourney weaver a fantastic actress consuming a role this is a cast and crew at their best this is you know and this i just i can't i can't say too much about it i can't i can't praise it enough yeah to me it's literally a perfect movie um i have zero complaints about it um it's still for me the gold standard for sci-fi for horror for pretty much anything like this is my favorite movie um which is interesting because a lot of my other favorite movies are more comedies or whatever much gentler films but alien is number one with a bullet maybe it shows that i'm getting a little more cynical in my uh as i slump towards middle age um but what's been your favorite movie for a while hasn't it? yeah it has that's true i think yeah but within you are two wolves. One is alien and the other is Rushmore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just, it's one of those examples of when everything comes together just right. And it makes you appreciate, or it makes me appreciate just how difficult filmmaking is because so many people have to collaborate and so many decisions have to be correct. And you know, most movies don't get all of them right. Like you can walk out of, I walk out of a lot of movies going like, oh, I liked that. But then, you know, I don't ever think about it again or whatever. And that's fine. But in some movies I walk out of like, wow, every single decision in that movie was wrong. Uh, But this is like everybody just kind of running in sync and creating this perfect work of art that is also commercially viable. Um, Which is, which is impressive even of itself. Like the, like we've discussed in the past, it's sort of like the wavelength of art and commercialism <clears throat> usually aren't at the same frequency. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's interesting seeing how um, differently Prometheus and Covenant are received because they make a lot of those implicit themes more explicit. Uh, and I think that Scott sort of lost the general audience there. Uh, whereas, you know, people like you and me are like, nom, 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 you know, just eating it up like delicious pudding. But um but Alien manages to function at the monster level, at the horror level, at the spectacle level, um, and also wrestling with cosmic questions in a way that 
um, its sequel doesn't. Like it, even though the sequel opens up the world wider in terms of the mythology, it actually doesn't feel ideologically bigger. It it feels more like a bigger budget remake in a lot of ways, like so much so that there's even an airlock, you know, an alien getting blown out of an airlock. It's just a bigger alien and a bigger airlock at the end. Um, and I think that's intentional. I think that's by design. I think that's sort of how James Cameron likes to do sequels because Terminator 2 is also very much hit some of the same notes as the first Terminator. Um, just on a bigger scale. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, I, I it's just, I could talk about Alien and probably will off and on for the rest of my life. Um, We've been talking about it for about two months now, and now it's time. Now it's time to stop. Now it's uh, our journey has come to an end. Although it's it's not a a hard goodbye. It's more like a a fond farewell. Yeah. Um, last surviving member of the Nostromo signing off. This is a yeah. This isn't a goodbye. This is a see you later. Yeah. A good journey. Our summer of of love. Our summer of alien love. It's a it's a bit wistful. It's a it's a bit wistful right now. Yeah, I I I am ready to lay down my uh, my my face huggers and my um, ovomorphs ovomorphs for a little while. I feel like I have sated myself on this particular craze, and I'm excited for what comes next, and excited to inevitably come back around to these movies, um, you know, down the road as an obsessive and a fan. Well, that just about wraps it up for us. For just a couple more days, our giveaway will be open. You can win a copy of the book, The Art of Alien Isolation, or the Alien RPG Starter Set. Winners will be selected in just a couple of days on July 31st. You can enter by following us on Twitter at Podcast and using the hashtag Podcast, and you'll automatically be entered one entry per Twitter handle. It's super easy to enter. We want to make it super easy to, to win. We want to want to give back to the community that's that's spending their time listening to us gab about xenomorphs. Yes, we do. Thank you so much. We'll be back in just a couple more weeks with a brand new arc. Until next time, Xenomorph. Until next time, Ripley. Until next time, Mother. My name is Sergio. Mine is Sean. Be kind to yourself and to others.